Is someone peeing in the background? No, we're making tea. Should we stop it? <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. I love it. it. That's gonna. You sure? So we're gonna put that in the in the intro now for sure of this whole podcast. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. I. Take a break. We have an aversion to ourselves and to what's happening inside us. Inside us. I've been very interested in this problem for a long, long time. Something settles. In this episode, I speak to Ruby Wax. Ruby is a very well-known comedian, originally from the US, but has spent most of her adult life in the UK. In the 1980s, actually, she's been around for a while. She's a vet of this comedy game. She uh, starred in the sitcom Girls on Top and came to prominence as a comic interviewer in shows like The Full Wax and Ruby Wax Meets. No other interviewer is quite so honest. I am 54. I'm 75. I'm so bold. Were you nuts or something? Yes. Yeah. Ruby Wax Meets kicks off with the Spice Girls. I didn't like you upstaging me at the end. Could I just have a word with you? She was the writer for the sitcom Absolutely Fabulous, otherwise known as Ab Fab, from 92 to 2012. I absolutely love that show. It is the best. Also appearing in two episodes for that show, not just being the main writer. Drinky before we go. Where are you going? <laughs> New York. I didn't think they let people with drug convictions in. Darling, it's not a conviction, just a firm belief. Yes. Ruby's openly suffered from depression and mental health challenges that seen her hospitalised as an ongoing inpatient. As a result, most of her recent life has been devoted to cultivating the field of mental well-being. She's graduated from Oxford University in 2013 with a master's degree in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. She is... Uh, fancy words that I can't even pronounce at London Regents University of London. Basically, she's got a master's in psychotherapy and counselling too, and a visiting professor in the School of Mental Health and Nursing at the University of Surrey, as well as holding honorary doctorates from the School of Psychology from the University of East London. Wow. So she's gone from comedy, basically, and nailed the whole academic thing, so you should listen to her. She's got some good stuff to tell. She's received an OBE actually for her service to mental health. So yeah, big deal. She's published a couple books, Sane New World and A Mindfulness Guide for the Frazzled, which has been bestsellers. And her latest book, How to Be Human, uh, was published earlier this year in January 2018. Ruby's also founded some really cool initiatives like Black Dog Tribe, which is a social networking site that provides social support with mental health issues. And then She's also used uh, some of this work to partner with the likes of Marks and Spencers in the UK, where she's created frazzled cafes where people can come and just have a chat, kind of like AA, but really just anyone who's feeling frazzled with, you know, with or without a diagnosis. And this chat is more of a lighthearted interview, so enjoy listening to our shit and inappropriate jokes about things you probably shouldn't joke about. But what better way not to feel so crazy than to listen to someone who totally and unapologetically owns it. I had a lot of fun making this episode with Ruby. 
Very, very mild trigger warnings in this episode, maybe some around hospital admissions for mental illness, um, but otherwise it should be pretty clear. As always, go slow, go strong, one moment at a time. We're all on the journey. One in four people suffer from some sort of mental illness. So if it was uh, one, two, three, four, it, it's you, sir. You. Yeah, with the, with the weird teeth. And you next to him. You know who you are. Actually, that whole row isn't right. That's not good. Hi, yeah, real bad. Don't even look at me. Um, I am uh, w- one of the one in four. Thank you to try and make people laugh all the time, not just in that show, but in your day-to-day life as a, as a comic. That must, uh, that must get, get pretty heavy. Well, I, I don't make people laugh unless they pay <laughs> or it's a charity or I'm doing my show, but, but then they're still paying. So it's just a day job. You know, it's like saying to a, I don't know, a ballet dancer, what's it like doing a tour jeté in the grocery store? And you go, sweetheart, it's only on the stage. So I don't spend my days being funny. I spend them, you know, being quite morose or depressed or, you know, or I'm having a really good time because I like somebody. Right. I love that. Well, um, let's hope that this is a good time because I know that mental health is a huge uh, thing for you. Um, You were awarded an OBE, Special Honours for Service in Mental Health. How did that come about? In America, they think it's a yeast infection. And they say they're really sorry, and am I taking medication for it? So it really doesn't have much to do with anything. Uh, you get, you know, every time I get a little bit of uh, arrogance, I'm kicked in the ass pretty quickly by karma. So OBE is nothing now. But at the time, you know, I had, just on that, I had my, uh, you could celebrate where you wanted to because I'm American, I can't go to the palace. Yeah, mm. go figure that, but you can still get the award. So I had, a, I had my party in the Priory which is our mental institution. And um, there was my friends mixed with people obviously being <laughs> taken into the friary. So they were confused because we had a little cardboard cut out of the queen. <laughs> and uh, it was my happy place. So that's why I had it. And there was a big dispute because the Lord Lieutenant comes and, and he's got a sword. He does a little ceremony when he gives you the OBE. And they were a little worried because there's a lot of cutters in the um, institution. But we worked it out. Nobody stole the sword. <laughs> So it's fine. Yeah, sword in a mental institution is definitely one for the uh, for the history books. So you've done well there. Well, an OBE in a mental institution ain't bad either, and it's not in your imagination. But so, what was the question? It was how did the OBE come about? So, what are some of the things that you're most proud of in your service to mental health? You know, everything's an accident. So, um, you know, I lost, I, I fell out of my job in TV after about 25 years. I don't have to go into the details. Not, nothing bad happened. It's just that, you know, you lose your mojo and, and you're usually replaced by somebody who um, is less funny than you are. But it's okay. I'm not bitter. It really worked out well. But uh, <laughs> I thought, I, and then I had a really bad uh, depression. This is about 12 years ago. No more, 15. And then I said, uh, okay, I'm going to do something this time so that I, you know, that's less ego driven and more like a, a mental food you know, psychological food rather than just mm. love me, love me food. So I, um, first of all, well, I've told the story before, so I'm sort of sick of it, but because it's the beginning of my show, that a show that I did three shows back called um, Losing It, which is that comic relief 
around the time that I was very ill, put a poster of me up in the tube stations, lots of posters. It said, it was a picture of me and it said, one in four people have mental illness. One in five people have dandruff. I have both. And they didn't ask me. So when I saw it in the tube station, I was mortified. It went all the way down. There were hundreds of posters. So that's when I thought I'm going to write a show. I got to write a show and I'm going to pretend it's my publicity poster. (laughs) So I never would have told anybody I had a mental illness, but the posters were up. So I wrote a show. I performed it in mental institutions for the next um, two years free. But I got to stay overnight because I love mental institutions because that's where I feel comfortable. And they're my people, especially in the smoking room. And they're, I mean, you can't top that one. So I performed there and then it went into real theaters, this show, not the one I'm doing now. And it went around the world and it went to Australia, it went everywhere. And then in the second half, I have people in the audience talk. And in the beginning, maybe they were reticent. I don't really remember. But now, because I still have the second half, the audience talk, sometimes it's a thousand people and they're fighting to stand up. And I thought, oh, everybody wants to talk. And then when I was in, when the show was in London, I'd invite the public in in the day once a week. And I'd invite like the big deal um, guys who are in mental health, like Peter Fonagy, who runs the Anna Freud Center, Mark Williams, who invented mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, Lewis Walpart. These are big players. So the audience could come in free. I'd give them these great guys who would tell them about medication or therapy, whatever. And then I brought therapists in there and... Um, the, the people in the theater could meet a therapist and then I'd serve cookies and coffee. It was really fun. But, you know, you, sounds like a dream. It was a dream. But, you know, it's a little confusing being in a theater. So eventually I said sometime, someday I'm going to put this into other environments. So I created something. First, I created Black Dog Tribe, which was an online kind of um, place where people could meet and be honest. But I thought, no, no, we have to meet face to face. So I created Frazzle Cafes. And there we have Marks and Spencers. I don't know if you know that, but there's one in every town. They're, they're huge. I don't know what your equivalent is. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a food shop. It's closed. It's and they have cafes. So I'm in partnership with them. They close down their cafes. And we invite groups of 15 to come. And it's anonymous. you can be anonymous. You're, you're safe. And you tell your story like you do. But they meet every two weeks, and some of them have been going on for a year. So they have their people, their kind of tribe, and there's a facilitator who's trained by the Welcome Trust, and they hold the space. And um, and that became my baby. And now it's starting in Sky TV, and it's starting in corporations. And so I started to get into mental health a lot. And because of it becoming my mission by accident, then you get awarded by the queen. <laughs> I used my illness uh, and turned it into hard cash. <laughs> and I then I got it. professorships and I got doctors. People st- and because mental health, I was right. You know, it is a physical disease. Get off this track that it's a mental illness. Like there's a little guy up there in your brain thinking, you know, air bubble thoughts. Right. It's a piece of meat that gets damaged. Just like when Alzheimer's is a brain disease and you wouldn't say to somebody with Alzheimer's, come on, snap out of it. You remember where the key is. So depression is the real thing, too. And I ranted for the last 12 years. Not ranted. I turned it into comedy. And um, two days ago, they changed the laws here. And uh, I was with Julian Gillard was here. Julia Gillard, who I love. You know, oh, really? Yeah, she was here. Yeah. I told her I was doing this, by the way, because we were talking about how far ahead Australia Oh, so the ex-prime minister is aware of what we're doing. 
That's good. Well, I said I was being interviewed and she, you know, she seemed to know what I was talking about. And then, um, Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. And, uh, that was just all this happened three days ago. And then four days ago, I was with, get this, Teresa May. And we're talking mental health mm -hmm. because too many people are, and so she assigned a minister for suicide prevention because even she's woken up. Everybody's woken up. It's costing this country too much money. Wow. And uh, there's too many young people committing suicide. And so the zeitgeist is now making parity between physical and mental health. So that was my mission. Mm -hmm. And look how far I got, or we all got. Amazing. I love I love it. I love you. I love it all. Um, so it's a happy story. It is a happy story. There is life after television. <laughs> that's, that's definitely one takeout. Um, yeah. and there's, there's, there's life after breakdown as well. Um, there's life after breakdown. Yeah. And you've shown that with such strength and such grace and such lightness. Um, a lot of what you were saying around places for people to tell their story is exactly what Heart on My Sleeve is about. And where I think I mentioned this to you when I first met you last year, that we're trying to build a program called Circles, which is where people can come and chat and tell their story, but it's more of a digital hub. Yeah. And I'd love to talk to you more about your learnings there so that we can follow in your footsteps. Well, uh, I started Black Dog Tribe three years ago, and we were going to have, uh, you know, Circles too. And we had videos of people who uh, complied with uh, they allowed us to film them when they stood up in the audience. So you'd get mothers tearing their hair out about what to do with their kids. You got other people that really only got out of bed for the first time in five years to come to the show. And we videoed them so the, uh, the public could see, oh, I resonate with her. And then they would join a little circle. They could have visual help. Um, as to who they identified with. Wow. Uh, so that was Black Dog Tribe. But I then so many people started, um, you know, that kind of online thing. I really wanted to create something where it was face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Just because I think it's great that you can connect this way, but nothing passes oxytocin faster, which is that chemical when we have compassion, than when you're looking at somebody. Totally. Yeah. And those people, they come in so nervous when they first come to a Frazzle Cafe, but by the end, it's like, um, I can't say church, but it's a, you know, people speaking human is a phenomenal experience mm. where there's no bullshit and nobody asks how your kids are, like you give a shit, you know, about how kids are. Everybody speaks. No small talk. No small talk. Now I pay money for that, but this is free. So, I mean. If you can do that online, that's great. But ultimately, I think there has to be human connection at this point. Yeah. I mean, my next book is about can AI and compassion have a marriage, but there isn't anything yet except, you know, these online communities, which is what, which is what we've got and it's saving a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with the face-to-face -face stuff and we're working hard to see how we can strike a balance there. But that's a conversation that I want to, I want to continue with you after this interview about how I can stay close with you on that and, and learn everything. I can selfishly about what you've already done. So, and I really love how, how comedy has been an instrument or a device that you've sort of used to, as a coping tool, but also as a way to help other people. Why do you think that comedy cuts through the shit so well? Because comedy cuts through the shit so well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't do it on purpose. It's, a, it's my language. I'm not, I'm dyslexic and I really can't write a sentence that's correct grammatically, but I, I kind of speak in jazz. That's what happened when you met me with Dan Siegel. I was a little riffing too much. Sometimes my sentences don't really finish and I leave out a lot of nouns. 
that's, you know, and that's what I did with him. One of my mortifying experiences, again, I screwed (laughs) up an interview is what I'm talking about here. But uh, comedy, it opens people's mouths because they're laughing. And then you can kind of shove everything in there because they're vulnerable. And if you make them laugh, then you deserve saying something serious. Whereas if you're just Mm. whining about something or you're just talking, everybody has a mental problem. People write about it and I'm, I'm sorry for them. But in order to get, you got to bring something to the table if you're going to do a show. And it happened that I speak comedy. So it was a perfect match. Now everybody's using their mental illness, so I have to change it again. <laughs> Maybe herpes, something else. It's become a trend. Everybody jumped on that bandwagon. Maybe everyone's using herpes, but like unwillingly. So like maybe there'll be like a, what's, what, what happens if comedy and herpes have a baby? What do you get? Ah, Kerberty. I'm not sure, but it's going to come. We'll we'll find out. (laughs) But yeah, no, I think comedy for me, it kind of has two roles. One is I ingest a lot of it. I love, um, at the end of my day to unwind with stand up. I'm a huge fan of Tom Segura, especially Chris Delia and uh, even Dave Chappelle. Oh. And they, they are so good at just being like, oh, yeah, guess what? Your lives aren't that fucking important. And you're like, oh, thank God. Um, and I also sort of translate. I guess in transference in some way, um, I take some of their energy and spirit and vibe that I see on the TV screen and it walks with me in my day-to-day life when, when I see that thought bubble come up and go, I don't have to take you as seriously as I thought I had to. Um, w- what are some of the things you say back to your thought bubbles? Thought bubbles are uh, w- been my obsession. I've write, written about them for three, through three books and actually tonight, I'm, I'm beginning my tour of the book of my next, this book that's out here called How to Be Human with a Monk and a Neuroscientist. And in the second half, they're on with me. So this is a joy. This is the first time I've toured with people. And I ask him about those negative thoughts. And I say, is, do we have some kind of an asshole gene? <laughs> and then he does give an answer. There is a reason why we have the thought bubbles. That doesn't mean they're going to go away. It just means that sometimes understanding your brain for me is a relief because then I know it's not my condition. It's a human condition. There are some things that have backfired a little bit that worked hundreds of thousands of years ago. But our little brain, part of it is still Stone Age. It's, there's still old bits in it, and it doesn't realize the wallpaper's changed. So it can't really adapt to what's going on now. And it's interpreted as I'm not good enough. I can't pull this off. I screwed up. We have more negative thoughts than we do positive. That's the human, that's just humanity. And there's a reason because if we whistled a happy tune, we would have been devoured, you know, back in the bush. So we always needed to be on our toes. It's just that now we're not going, oh my God, there's a predator. Do something about it. The, uh, the hidden dangers are I'm not popular enough. And I, I make a joke saying girls aren't, you know, we're not just competing for who's the most popular in your school which, you know, we are supposed to be competitive creatures. These little girls are competing with supermodels and Russian hookers who make 3,000 pounds an hour. Of course, they're going to have low self-esteem. We live in a world now where it's global. And so as a human, we don't feel the threat is that we're not important enough. People don't like us enough. We didn't do well enough. They're just as threatening as a predator. It's just these are modern day um, dangers. And then, of course, it's shaming because they're so mundane. And yet, 
our little brain feels thread. It doesn't really realize, oh, something isn't right behind me. The thread is psychological. I'm trying to explain it, but I might not be doing that well. No, you are. So the point is, is that we're, as somebody said, this really brilliant guy said, we're Teflon for positive thoughts and Velcro for negative ones. Mm. And that's just the way it is. So a little bit with my critical thoughts, I think, you know, part of my, the relief is everybody's got them. Even you who on paper, when you were telling me what you did and what you look like and, you know, what you accomplished, I think, well, what's he so upset about? On the other hand, it makes me feel better to know that even you, and probably you might think somewhere in your mind, oh, even her. And I, you know, think she's doing so. I like her work. She's got those. And and the more we speak honestly, the better we'll feel. But believe me, they're not going to go away. It's just a human condition. You just learn to go, okay, I've got that thought going in my head. I'm glad he's not looking at me because I look like shit right now. Um, I know it's there. Or you've brought up the memory of me being interviewed by my hero, Dan Siegel, and how awful when I listened to the recording it was. But it's not killing me. It's it's sort of going, okay, that's one of your negative. There's nothing I can do about that interview or this one. But I don't have to beat myself up for how bad I think I'm doing. Yeah. So you learn to live with them. And you don't have to hold it so tightly. And I I think that's what humor does. It's kind of like if it it defrosts shit, you know, it it just kind of, yeah, it just melts stuff away a little bit when you're like, fuck, I need to take the edge off this emotion, this thought, this fucking meeting tomorrow, whatever it is. You're like, oh yeah, like it doesn't matter that much. And like my boss probably has you know, farted three times during this conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whatever coping mechanism you have, but you do need to get one. Wishing it or doing positive thinking, saying, oh, I'm a wonderful person. I shouldn't feel this. That's repressing. Um, you're repressing it. And if you have, I always think, if you're repressing something, it will rear its head when you least expect it. Mm. You, you have to do some kind of practice that gets you ready for when the, um, you know, when the shit hits the fan. So I, I do mindfulness. Other people might do other things, but you can't just, you know, pull the ripcord when you're falling out of the plane for the first time. You have to practice it. And, and I think that practice that you're alluding to is, you know, pe- some people listening to this might be like, well, what do I do? Like, what's the opposite yeah. of repression? And, and I would say that that is acceptance or a willingness mm-hmm. to let something be present with you or real or face a certain truth or anything that allows you to deal with the discomfort of not avoiding something, right? Yeah, that's easier said than done. Right. But I like the idea that if you face the monster, it runs from you. But if you run from it, it chases you. Yeah. But again, this stuff is hard. It's like saying, oh, well, with a marathon, you just put one foot in front of the other (laughs) in order to accept. I have to practice mindfulness. Maybe somebody else does things like they learn Tai Chi so they can lower their cortisol or I don't know, maybe you, some people pray, uh, you know, but you have to do something because if it was so easy to live with your critical thoughts, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Correct. Um, and I think that's why so many of us wear a mask because we, we do it to fit in to our own internal narrative that we've told ourselves forever and the narrative that society expects of us. And we're like, shit, we can't reconcile the difference between those two things. And so 
I need to play some sort of character. And I loved um, when I heard you talk, you said, because you, you used to talk a lot about you wanted to be loved, you wanted to be recognized and appreciated. And then you said, you can smell the desperation on someone. Mm. People can just sniff it out. And I was like, God damn, that's so true. When someone's just not being real or being authentic, it literally is is palpable in the air, isn't it? Yeah. And then what happens is it switches it on in you. So you're both now uh, caught in that treadmill of bullshit. It's every, we're very infectious to each other. So again, it takes some kind of practice to learn the, the crap that's going on in me maybe uh, from the other person, but not because they're doing it to be cruel, but they're listening to their own internal, uh, you know, um, they're getting their own bad reviews and they're just, I happen to be in the firing line. So a lot of times it helps to think this, this isn't personal. You're just going through your own hell. These are all little coping mechanisms, but try it in action. (laughs) That's the trick. See how it goes on for size in the real world. Um, yeah, try it on. Yeah. yeah, it's not so easy. But as you say, knowing that everyone else is fucking it up is like the best place to start because you're like, oh, I don't have to get it right. I just know that it's a good sort of goal to have is to drop the there mask. Is, but there and- is no right, you know. Like I, I, there's bits of me that are really manipulative and I can lie really well. Well, yeah, you got to make peace with that bit too. Mm. Hopefully – I'm not going, oh, don't be a liar. You know, you go, well, some of my lying actually worked out quite well. You know, if you're aware of it, you start to change it. I'm not saying, oh, you know, I'm a jerk. Let me forgive myself. It's once you turn the light on, you know, your own mind, but you learn to forgive it. That's the second bit. Then you forgive it in other people. I don't think you just go, oh, I accept it. You know what I mean? I'm a wonderful person, even though I'm, you know, I hurt other people. But once you know the detail of how you do it or why you do it, it does start to disperse. And a lot of this, the last few minutes we've been talking kind of accidentally, but awesomely about coping techniques. So like what are the sort of three things you do on a daily basis to, to keep your shit together? This is just me and I'm not saying, oh, and everybody, sh-, you know, because things that work sure. for you don't work for everybody. But I have to do mindfulness, A, because um, – I learned it because of depression and it doesn't stop it, but I can tell when it's coming. You know, it does give you that overview, like you're taking your mental temperature. So I can tell the difference between just the critical thoughts and when the thoughts are starting to turn into the tsunami. And again, Mm. you know, knowledge is power. You can do certain things if you know that that tsunami's coming. Like really turn off the um, computer, stop desperately trying to, have dinner parties because you don't want to feel alone. You are alone and you're getting sick. So respect it. Um, and also, uh, I, it's, you know, I studied mindfulness. I, I don't like new agey stuff, you know, I, I, but I wanted to figure out what had the best results for, you know, those critical thoughts or depression or whatever. And mindfulness and cognitive therapy reigned. And so I went to Oxford and got my master's in it. And they weren't teaching witchcraft, so I thought, well, there probably was something in it. And it does have the best results for a lot of people. For other people, you shouldn't go near it. So I have to do that every day. So mindfulness and cognitive therapy. And, and when you say mindfulness... Um, well, cognitive what- therapy is, was the course I was on. It was mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. But 
It's just because my professor was, John Kabat-Zinn invented mindfulness for people in pain, you know, was physical. Mm -hmm. And my professor at Oxford was one of the guys that invented it for depression and psychological use. So that's why it's called mindfulness and cognitive therapy. And so what does your practice of mindfulness physically look like during the day? Like, is it meditating? Is it eating? Is it walking? Is it just thinking? Well, you have to do an exercise. It's, you know, you don't get a sit up. You don't get a six pack if you do one sit up or even think about it. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I wrote a book called, let just plug it here, Mindfulness Guide for the Frazzled, which gives exercises. That's the book before this one that you don't have to sit there on a gluten free cushion. But it's a muscle that every time you do it gets more buff, just the way a six pack does. Yeah. So you can do it in the back of a taxi, in a, on a train, you know, um, standing in a queue. We're talking about mindfulness, right? Yeah, mindfulness. You can, um, and I do it before <laughs> I go on stage um, because otherwise, if I forget my lines, I'll panic. Whereas if your cortisol's down and you forget your lines, there's there's kind of a space. It gives you that this isn't life and death feeling. But there's a physical thing that's happening too. Right. Well, I guess I'm just most disappointed by you missed my sex joke. You were talking about doing it in the back of a car and on a train. And I was like, damn, she's going to love this one. And I was on my mission. If I saw you, I would have known. But I'm not seeing you. I'm just seeing squiggly lines. Right. That's what it was. It's the, yeah. So it's not me. It's it's technology. Yeah. So is there any weird shit that you do during the day? Like for for me. um, What do you do? Like sauna. Saunas are like defrosting times 10. I, um, in terms of holding things loosely, for some reason it is in my top three self-care along with meditating or, you know, repeating perspectives that are important to me. Saunering is key. It fills my brain with blood. Um, I'm a huge fan of it. Are you near a sauna that you can just get in it? Yeah, I am. Surprisingly, my gym has one and my gym's just up the road. And so like I go work out and I go sit in a sauna. You can run over there. Yeah run, walk, actually drive to the gym. So like, that's how much of a lazy shit I am. And then you go work out in the gym. And then I sit in a sauna and be more lazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But whatever works for you. Right. And like, I don't know, I got some other weird stuff. Like I I do certain stomach massages. Um, I visualize my, this is a real thing and I'm not being crass here, but I seriously do visualize my bum feeling relaxed because I hold so much tension in my bum. And so, like, that's just a weird one that I'm like, yep, that's (laughs) that's the one that that's the one that it's um, what mindfulness is, is if if you focus on something physical, whether it's your bum or whether you're, uh, you know, feeling the earth when you're walking or you feel anytime you throw your focus to a sense, something happens, the cortisol comes down in your brain. That's all mindfulness Mm. is. Every time it's a physical thing, I don't care if you're. You know, Arabs use those beads. So your bum thing is this close to what I do as I can. You feel your bum on the ground or, you know, on the chair. That's that's a mindfulness exercise. <clears throat> it means your brain clear for that second. You can't be in your bum and in your brain at the same time. Let that be a lesson. Can't be in both places. <laughs> and actually, let's do a T-shirt that says that. Can't be in your bum and in your brain. Can we? And can the back say anus anchor? Anus anchor. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I feel you like that. You use it in Australia and I'll use it place. here and see who makes the right, most we'll, money out of it. We'll, yeah. we'll split the revenues. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> the um, <laughs> yeah, good. It's not a bad good. idea. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I um I honestly feel like I'm about to throw in heart on my sleeve and, and start this up. So um, I'm glad we're building <laughs> backup plans. 
Well, you know, heart smart. Anus is going to, you know, get everybody's attention. A hundred percent. Anchor your anus. I'm just throwing it in there. Your That's anus. it. I'm giving it to you. All right. Thanks. And, and you can use that, by the way. It's all, it's all free. Thank you. Free for you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love the, uh, the line that you used. Um, I think it was in your TED talk where you said, I'd like to start by thanking the makers of sertraline because I wouldn't be vertical without it. Oh, yeah. Uh, for those that don't know what that is, that's an antidepressant. <laughs> and I, I am also on, on sertraline. Has medication played a big part for you? A, a huge part of my life, yeah. Not to mention how many mountains are in my bathroom, you know, just mountains of them. And then it's like a mouse. I take them and they go on tour with me. And do I get the right? Yeah. I mean, if there was something else, which someday there will be, then we'll take that. But I mean, let me just say, it's only because I really have depression. If you just had a bad hair day or you're sad and a doctor gives it to you, he should be burned to stake. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it is a brain disease. This isn't about being sad. That's the big thing is that what's ruining the whole movement is all these GPs throwing out medication to people who come in and go, oh, I'm upset. Well, ask them why they're upset. If there's a reason, they're not depressed. Depression is death. Mm-hmm. It's just you're dead. If your eyes look glazed and you look like, you know, you can't decide whether to jump off a cliff or have a manicure, chances are how you got depression. They need to be medicated. Mm-hmm. Other people go, oh, I got off my medication. You say you're bipolar and you got off your medication. Great. You feel good now, but you're going to burn down a building in about two minutes. Mm-hmm. You need medication, but not if you're sad. Right. It's it's knowing where you're at. And and I think that people feel a lot of, of shame. Like if I start medication, it means that I'm not strong enough to do it yeah. myself. Like what would you say to someone like that? Well, I'd say if you had cancer, would you, would you give up the chemo? It's the same thing. Right. You want to bite the bullet? And if they say, yeah, I would do it without chemo, then you go, well, good luck. You know, mm. you can't be this backward in 2018. No. Totally. I think medication is a huge part of the, of the toolkit, uh, you know, and there's, there's a bunch of levers that you can pull and that's a really important one um, and should be done, you know, carefully, as you say, with the right supervision, but fuck me, it's important. Yeah, I know. But that's the problem is a lot of people get just people who are GPs. Well, would you go to him to have a heart, you know, heart transplant? Right. Uh, some of them are trained in it, but uh, the nerve of it is unbelievable. So... Good luck getting the right medication. Do you prefer psychiatrists and GPs to do your prescribing? Uh, um, you know, I'm lucky enough that, yeah, you need a specialist, okay? Mm. You know, all I can say is if you had, I don't know, anything, you broke your leg, you're going to go to a, a bone doctor, you're not going to go to a dentist. Now, if a doctor understands psychiatry, fine. But if he doesn't, why don't you just go to a plumber or, you know, an Uber driver? You've got to be trained in this stuff. Yeah. I think the part that I love most about all your messages that you have for mental health, and you have many good ones, is that hospitals are a good place. You know, you you talk about it a lot that you found your tribe. Um, I'd love to hear one of your funniest story or one of your most memorable stories from your time in hospital. You mean in in the institution? Yeah. I, you're talking about mental institutions. Correct, yeah. Yeah, we don't call them hospitals here. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're in, you don't really know what's going on, you know, that you, um, you're you out of it. But as the days go by and you realize you're with your people, 
uh, and you can have conversations that are, do you think this will go away? I promise it will. Do you really think it'll go away? Yeah, I'm yeah, I, I think it will. Really, it's going to go away. Those are the conversations. And people don't mind and they don't get bored. Then you start to feel better. And also they're working on the right chemical balance is while I was, while I'm in the Priory, we had salsa class led by this guy called Derek. He's American. He's uh, completely like buffed up and he goes, okay, people, I don't care if you're a schizophrenic. Those are the walls. Don't try and walk through them. <laughs> and then it, people would fall over. Cause he'd like, it was like Broadway go two, three and hump it and throw it and hump it two, three, four. Come on. What are you Canadian? You can't hump, hump it. And he made us do these kind of Broadway musicals. And it's funny because yesterday I was looking at footage of my coronation when I became an OBE. And what uh, we did was we made uh, Derek come out of the gym and teach all my friends some of the salsa work. <laughs> and so, so there's good. Mark Williams who invented mindfulness and a lot of people we're now doing the salsa class. That's awesome. But it was so nuts. It was so nuts that it um, eventually you do get better because you're just dripping in sweat. You don't get better, but it's hilarious. And Derek's like, we're not talking easy footwork. We're talking about Bob Fosse. You know, this is on seriously like high kicks and turning and switch, switch, switch. And he's shouting with this music going on. And that's what they're giving to mentally ill people. So, so those were my favorite times. And, and what made you feel so safe there? Because it's um, like the, the nurses are angels, or they were. I don't know how good it is now. And they'll be tolerant and sit in your room and hold your hand. I was really lucky to have insurance to get in there. That's all I'm saying. You know, if you didn't have insurance, mm. good luck. Um, and then we had to play a game where uh, you went into the garden and there was a hat. And we all, this is mentally ill people, we all had to take a little piece of paper and mine said chicken. And then I... I was blindfolded, everybody was blindfolded, and I had to find the other chicken. This is a game. And so I had to go, bark, 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 and here, find the other person who was another chicken going, bark, 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 bark. but everybody was another farm animal. So it was really, so all you heard was, then I found the other chicken, and it was really helpful. That's that so good. Game. For starters, uh, if you were a passerby walking past the mental institution where yeah, everyone was fucking being animals. There's high walls. Yeah. But, but the fly on the wall could have just loved the shit out of that whole thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. What's not to love? What's not to love? And the nurses, you say, uh, are the most lovable, right? They're the most wonderful, yeah. The most wonderful. I'm always grateful for them. Mental health hospitals are something that still have a massive stigma around them. And uh, your experience was just such Everybody's an enlightening and happy one. Yeah. People are desperate, you know, because I there to get in um, and there aren't any. And that's the tragedy is if you have a heart attack, you can get in a hospital or whatever. But if you have mental illness or on the verge of suicide, because I get people coming to my show who say I am on the verge of suicide and they won't let me in because it's only a mental illness. So that's another problem. There are not enough of them, and there are not enough beds. If they did have them, then not that many people would go nuts because they are a safe place. Why do you think people don't get led into institutions, hospitals, whatever you want to call it, when they are suicidal? Because it's not taken until Theresa May and I last week. She made a minister of uh, suicide prevention. Let's hope that works, but at least she did it is the people think mental means mental, like your, it's your imagination. 
as educated as we are, they think that. So I would say, well, do you imagine your um, diabetes? Do you imagine, uh, you know, appendicitis? What are you talking about? Mental ill, nobody's faking it. Nobody's faking that they feel suicidal. <laughs> they either are or they aren't. You can't fake that thing. Mm. So, um, and, and if it wasn't a problem, not that many people would be doing it. But clearly they are. So there's a problem. What was for you the most like helpful therapeutic part of being in an institution or hospital environment? Was it that you were around people who were like-minded and so... Like me. Yeah. That's A and B. While you're there, somebody's checking your medication so they can make adaptions. Right. Uh, you know, saying, oh, this one's not working. If you're at home and suddenly something's not working or, uh, you know, first get good luck getting an appointment. And second, these um, changes take weeks. You know, they, it's not, you know, this, it isn't an aspirin that has 24 hours later, you see the results, you have to wait weeks. So the privilege of being in a hospital is you're in a safe place while they're playing with your cocktail. Right. I love that. That's another sexual reference. <laughs> I, I, this is the intros like going to be the whole podcast <laughs> because we're just going to be so stuck on like hours of sexual innuendos in the intro. It's going to be like yeah. five minutes on mental health and we're just going to be like, <laughs> fuck the rest of it. Yeah. Just uh, figure it out. First of all, just open with um, uh, the anal anchor. I yeah. Think that's what we start. Anal anchor and, and playing, and your playing with your cocktail. Playing, Playing with your cocktails and doing it while you're on the train. <laughs> there we go. That's our interview. We're, we're there. Um, no, but I, I totally resonate with what you were saying because when I started medication, fuck, it was the worst. I had uh, I literally had to pin a calendar to my mirror and I had like highlighted milestones so that I could get myself to like four more days because I knew that I would pop out the other side and I could up the dosage a little bit and then the new side effects would start and I was on a new schedule and God, like for, for two and a bit months, it was absolute torture and I, I remember thinking like I didn't have any room to break before I got on these and now I'm breaking more. Like, I don't know how this is going to work. And I could imagine how being in a hospital being like, I can break completely and uh, it's all good. Um, that would be really comforting. Yeah. And the doctor's right there. I don't know. You'd probably have to go back and forth. Yeah. I'm lucky. I, I had super good parents who were like, do what you need to do. Go insane if you need to. We got you covered. I'm like, oh, thank God. I can give the reins to someone. Wow. And you see people think it's your, you know, that it's genetic and you go, well, like you're just a case of it. How dumb is that? If you have five brothers and sisters or three or, or another one, do you both have mental illness? No. So we don't know what's nature and what's nurture. Yeah. It's definitely, I just thought I'd throw definitely that both. Yeah. If you had nice parents, people would go, oh, how'd you get a mental illness? Well, we don't know. It's luck of the draw. It is luck of the draw. Even rich, famous comedians like Miss Ruby Wax, who is one of the best people ever, can have one. I wouldn't say I'm that rich. <laughs> rich enough. I always think if you've got a disease, use it. And the, other, the best thing is, is that I did find my people, is that every time I'd go on stage, which I'll have to do, is that the very fact they talk honestly um, makes, makes me feel less alone. People say, why are you doing this? But I said, because I'm... I'm more lonely in real life than I am standing up here talking to you. Mm, that's really powerful. Well, it's true. And they, they can feel it too. And then they speak honestly to me. And then I go home and there's been no energy drawn out of me. 
because they give it right back. Mm. That's why I like doing these shows. I, I did 200 of the last one, and now I'm starting this tour. People go, aren't you tired? I go, are you kidding? Send me to a cocktail party. I'll go and I'll go nuts. But put you on a stage with a thousand people who are talking back to you. That's my idea of a good time. Yeah. Amen. So what, what would you say to someone who, who wants to speak up about how they feel, who wants to have a conversation, um, but they're shit scared, uh, rightfully so? Um, what would yeah. you say to them? I'd say go on your website, but over here I'd say go to a Frazzle Cafe. You know, it's Love what's it. available. Plugging both of us. Yeah, two plugs with one, uh, with one stone. <laughs> I'll, two plugs with one stone there, is there's the name another of my one. next floor. There is another one. <laughs> there's another one I know it just keeps coming I there's another one I know all right let's stop now let's get back to the uh whatever we were talking about oh my god that's awesome look I think that this has been an incredibly relieving hour for people to um actually get involved with mental health and um, it not feel so cumbersome to listening to someone like you um, who owns your shit so well and really speaks from the heart and you're leading the way for people to, to do the same. And so I'm so fucking grateful to be able to talk oh, to you and thanks. share your story. And when I come to Australia, you have to come see me. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I'm your I'm your Australian chaperone. You bet you are. I'm not doing this for nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's got to be something yeah. out of it. There's always Fuck a those deal. People who are hurting. Yeah, the you know I did my last book with the monk and the neuroscientist, and I'm thinking of the next book being "Act Like a Buddha, Think Like a Jew." <laughs> I Done. I would that. buy it. Okay. I would buy uh, it. Mitch, thanks a lot. Ruby, thank you so much again. I look forward to talking with you soon. Thank you.